Go ahead and turn to John chapter 6, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6, 16 through 40. We're picking up right where we left off. Last Sunday, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, or more appropriately, the feeding of about 15 or 20,000. And we're going to pick up at chapter 6, verse 16. the Lord in prayer together. Father, as we approach your word this morning, once again, we pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, in this bread of life discourse, we want to understand it. We want to see what it meant for the original readers. And we also want to apply it. We don't want to just simply hear it and think about it for a moment and then leave here and have it not impact our life. So Father, we pray this in faith and we trust you to to answer this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a husband and a wife who were going to an awards banquet. The husband was getting some kind of recognition at work and so They were getting ready, and and he put on his shirt and his tie, and he put his coat on, and he did his hair and and combed it the way he wanted, and he gave him one last look in the mirror, and then he went down and presented himself to his wife, and he said, well, how do I look? And she said, good. (laughs) And immediately he knew something was off because of the delay and because of her tone, and he said, what's wrong? And she said, nothing, it'll be fine. And that didn't help. So he said, just go ahead and tell me. He said, honey, you're not going to hurt my feelings. What's wrong? And she said, okay, well, that's a brown belt and you're wearing black shoes. And he said, I know, but it's the only belt I have. And she said, I know, and that's why I told you it will be fine. He was looking for straight talk. And I think we've all been in some sort of situation like that where either we're delivering news to someone or they're delivering news to us and and sometimes it's tempting to just kind of hint around and maybe use softer language and just kind of talk around what we're saying and hope the person gets the point without having to come out and actually say it and there's a time for that that's appropriate in, in some times But then there are other times where that's not appropriate. There are some times where we just need straight talk. Honest, direct talk. We we need to have it straight down the middle. When it's important, when it's time sensitive, we don't want someone to just kind of hint around. We want straight talk. In fact, we may have even asked for that. Have you ever been in a situation where something's really important, you don't have time, and someone's not really saying what they mean, and you just say, hey, tell me, I I don't understand, tell me exactly what you mean. Give it to me straight. There are times for that. In John chapter 6, 16 through 40, Jesus' listeners don't ask for straight talk, but he gives it to them. He gives them straight talk on his divinity, He gives them straight talk 
revealing the heart motivations of the crowd that was following him. And he gives straight talk regarding the fact that he is the way to eternal life. It's all straight talk, and we're going to see that in this passage. Jesus both exposes and explains using straight talk. And there are all kinds of applications that we could probably make, but we're going to focus on two this morning. When we get to the application, we're going to be talking about self-righteousness and the perseverance of the saints. Because they're both in this passage, and they come across very strongly. Here's our passage, John 6, 16 through 40. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We pick up in the middle of chapter 6 with Jesus walking on water. And it starts in verse 16, talking about when evening came and the disciples leaving. So this is right after the feeding of the probably around 20,000. And John tells us his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, 
and left. And they went to the other side, the, the Capernaum side, the, the Jewish side, the, the, the west side. And Matthew and Mark in the parallel account both tell us that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And he sent them away in front of him or before him. And then when they were sent away, he went up on the mountain to pray by himself. So in verse 18, we've got Jesus praying by himself and the disciples were in the boat. Now you might have or seen or, or maybe you have a, a study Bible that has a, an illustration of one of these first century Galilean fishing boats. They weren't that big. They were uh, probably about 26, 26 and a half feet long, about seven feet wide and four and four and a half feet deep. Constructed out of wood, no boat, no, no shelter, no cabin or anything. It was basically a, a good-sized wooden rowboat. So that's the kind of boat they were in. And they're in the boat. It's at night. It's dark. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So the Sea of Galilee has, in, surrounded by, by hills, mountains, and they have some valleys that, that take the cold wind from the mountains and from the higher elevation and funnel it down right onto the sea and, and they cause the sea to become quite rough. One modern eyewitness said it looked like a, quote, boiling cauldron when the wind was blowing. His particular group had to remain on shore for three days and three nights because it was so rough. They couldn't go out on the sea. It was that bad. And so here they are in a small wooden rowboat in the middle of a large body of water, not a lake up in Wisconsin or Michigan, a large body of water, and the sea is so rough it's compared to a boiling cauldron. I don't think we need to go through that experience. I don't think any of us have been in that kind of a situation. It must have been extremely fearful. And verse 19 tells us they were three or four miles into it, about a halfway, and they saw Jesus walking on the boat, and they were frightened. And isn't it interesting? It tells us they were frightened when they see Jesus walking. I think for most of us, we would have said, you, you had me at, in this small boat at night in the middle of a rough sea. But it's when Jesus is coming towards them. So Matthew and Mark tell us they thought it was a ghost. It says they were frightened. They, it says they cried out in fear. So it's bad enough you're in this tiny rowboat in the middle of this, this sea and, and, and dark. Remember, no lights. There were no lights. It was pitch black. And now there's something alive coming towards the boat on top of the water. And they can't see what or who it is because it's, it's too dark. And, and the water's going everywhere. And they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And he identified himself with these words, it is I, that's what the ESV has. It, in the Greek, it's ego et me, which is I am, which is the personal name of God. This is the same name that, name that God revealed himself to Moses with at the burning bush. And any Jew would have immediately picked up on that reference. If you were familiar at all with the first five books of the Bible, then you would immediately pick up on the I am as a reference to the Lord God. The one who created the sea, 
is the same one who can walk on the sea. So Jesus is using straight talk with this I am reference to himself, identifying himself, identifying his divinity. And this would be one of the things, this walking on the water, this command of the sea, and the revealing himself as I am, this would have been one of those things that will lead to Peter's confession later on in the chapter, in verse 69, where he says, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is what pointed them to that. This is one of those things that pointed them to that. Who else has commanded the sea? Only God has commanded the sea. Uh, the, the rest of the Old Testament makes that clear. God is in charge of, of the sea, which is normally thought of as chaotic and a, a place of evil. God has contar- in charge of the sea, and only God is the great I Am. Well, after the confession and the revealing of, of who he is, in verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So once they heard the word of Jesus, they were no longer frightened. And then this part about immediately, some people might be scratching their heads and said, so what, is this another miracle? It, it could have been, um, but probably not. Uh, Mark uses the word immediately a lot in his gospel, if you're familiar with the gospel of Mark, and it often simply means um, at once or quickly. Um, it, it can often mean without delay or shortly, and I think that's probably the meaning here. And then the crowd seek Jesus, uh, verses 22 through 24. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this because these verses are, are basically telling us the, the movement of the crowd and how they ended up on the other side of the sea. They, they, they saw, this is the same multitude that got fed by Jesus. So they, they saw that Jesus wasn't there. They saw the disciples weren't there. So they thought, why, why are we sticking around? Let's, let's go to the other side and try to find them. So that's what they did. And now we have this conversation with the crowd in verse 25. They found him. He's either back on the west side or the, or the northwest side, uh, the Jewish side. And they asked Jesus when he arrived. Jesus does not bother answering their question. Instead, he makes another truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Well, how does he know that? How does he know what's in their heart? Because John told us, remember at the end of chapter 2, Jesus knows what's in a man's heart. He knew what was in their heart. And so he can make this statement with divine precision. He can tell them exactly what they're thinking in their heart, exactly what their motivations were for seeking him. And Jesus says, it's not because you're looking for signs anymore, but because you want food. That's interesting because back in chapter 6, verse 2, we're told that the crowds were following Jesus because of the signs he was doing. And now Jesus tells them, you're not coming for the signs anymore. Now you're just coming because you want to be fed. In other words, they've dropped, the crowd has dropped even lower. The, the novelty of witnessing miracles has worn off. Uh, the entertainment factor of, of following Jesus around doesn't do it for them anymore. Now all they are looking for is uh, a free meal ticket. They're, they're looking for food. Verse 26 is a sharp rebuke. It's hard straight talk. 
but but they earned it. Look look at verse 25 again. 25 says, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Rabbi is a respectful title or an address given to someone that acknowledges that they are a legitimate teacher. So it's usually an honorific title that, that is given out. But they're not there to sit at his feet and learn. Jesus said, Jesus told us that. They're, they're not there to follow him as disciples. They're not there to, to follow him as their Lord or to commit to him. So when they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's kind of like saying, oh, hey, Jesus, there's our favorite teacher. How did you get over here so fast? We thought we lost you for a minute. And Jesus' answer is like telling them, stop, drop the act. I know why you're here. It's not because you want me as your teacher. It's not because I'm your Lord. You're looking for a meal ticket and you think I'm it. So just stop. That's straight talk. Verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. The message is plain. Do not orient your life and yourselves around the physical and the material, thinking of your stomachs and thinking of food. Instead, strive for the spiritual food that leads to eternal life. That's the only reason they were seeking him. And Jesus says, no, that's the wrong reason. Stop thinking about that. Turn your attention away from the world and towards God. Stop being concerned about your body and be more concerned about your soul. And now he connects to them. Look look how he connects with them. This is similar to the woman at the well. He takes something they're interested in, something they're interested in, and something they're seeking, and then he moves to the spiritual. With the woman at the well, it was water, and he moved to living water and eternal life. Here it's bread, food, and so he moves to bread of life, eternal life. He takes something they're interested in, he turns it towards the spiritual. And in both cases, the living water and the eternal food is him. What must they do? Turn to Christ, it says, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Grace, grace. Here are these people that are only interested in following him because of food, and he gives them the words of life. To them, to these people, he says, you must come for me, to me for this spiritual bread. I'm the only one who can give it to you. I'm the only one that the Father has set his seal upon. In the ancient Near East, remember kings and royalty and, and people of, of, of wealth often had these seals that they could seal something with. And whatever was sealed with someone's seal had the authority of that person that the seal belonged to. So Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who has been appointed by God the Father to give eternal life. I'm the only one who has the authority to give eternal life. You must come to me. And their response in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? The assumption is, it's up to me. Well, my salvation must, must be on me. If it's going to happen, I have to make it happen. So tell me what I have to do. Here is a picture of self-righteousness. Here it is. Tell me what I have to do 
to make myself right with God. I want to be able to say, I did it. I want to be able to say, I earned this. I want to be able to say, I deserve this. Tell me what I have to do, and then I'll go and do it. Jesus' answer is more straight talk. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He tells them, salvation is through me. There's nothing you can do to enter the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life. There's nothing that you can do to make yourselves right with God. Your work, in air quotes, your work is to believe in me. They didn't like that answer. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is like saying, what's that, Jesus, you want us to believe in you? No, no, no. Why should we? Give us a sign, then we'll think about it. Uh, just a reminder, this is the same crowd that literally the day before witnessed Jesus' most public, most witnessed uh, sign that's, that's recorded in all four Gospels. They were there. They were the recipients of the sign. They saw the sign. They ate the sign. And here they are the next day, and it as if Jesus hasn't done anything. It's like he's starting from scratch. Well, are you going to do a sign? They just saw the sign. Moses gave our fathers bread. Can you do that? So he gives them more straight talk. He says, okay, first of all, Moses did not give anyone bread from heaven. Moses was a mediator. Moses was a servant. It was God who gave you the bread from heaven in the wilderness. Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. But then he says, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. So secondly, the true bread is me. He's saying the manna that was given to them in the wilderness, that was a physical, material, earthly sign, but it points to the true bread, which is me. He's trying to pull them out of the, out of the world, out of the physical, out of the material, and get them into the spiritual realm. He's saying, it's me. That's not the true bread. I'm the true bread. I'm the one who gives life to the world. Then they said to him, verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. They're back. They're still over here. They're still in the world. They're still physical material. They're still thinking, hey, if there's a bread that's kind of like eternally producing or right, give us this bread always or this bread that always produces so we don't ever have to, to get anything to eat anymore. We don't have to work for bread anymore. Sir, give us this bread. This is probably the closest they come to straight talk. It's like they're saying, uh, okay, honestly, Jesus, that's the only reason we're here. If you want to give us this bread that it just kind of lasts forever, we'll take that and we'll leave you alone. So let's, let's do that. Give us, this, give us this bread. Verses 35 and 36. I am the bread of life. You're not getting it. I am the bread of life. It doesn't get much straighter than that. 
he tells them directly and he uses that connection point of bread. Jesus is the master of illustrations. Uh, bread works on so many levels. Just as we have to physically eat uh, to stay alive physically, we need the bread of life to stay alive spiritually. We can't live without the bread of life. All people must eat, whether you're rich, you're poor, you're Jew, you're Gentile, no matter who you are, you've got to eat. It's the same thing with Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, rich, poor, no matter where you're from, you've got to come to Jesus for spiritual life. There's no other source. We need to keep eating to stay alive. We, we don't have one meal and then say, well, that, that's good for the rest of my life. No, we, we regularly, continually. We, it's the same thing with Jesus. We don't come to Jesus once or, or say a prayer once and then say we're good to go. We need to continually come to Jesus, continually believe, continually follow him with repentance and belief. You've seen me, you've seen my signs. And then he says, and yet you do not believe. This shows us the irrational nature of, of unbelief. The fact that the Son of God is literally standing in front of them. He's, he's done signs right in front of them. Teaching from Jesus is flowing out of his mouth and they're listening and they don't believe. This should be encouraging for us as we proclaim the gospel, as we share Christ with people. We shouldn't be that surprised when people don't believe, when we're telling them about Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus continues with his mission and the work that the Father has given him. Jesus is aware that not everyone is going to believe in him, but he's also aware that there are a definite number of people who will believe and for those people, he will gather to himself and he will never let go. And that's what the next verses are all about. Verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Here's what he's telling them and what he's saying to them. He's saying, God's people believe in me. You're not believing in me. And as long as you do not believe in me, you're not part of God's people. You don't have eternal life. On the other hand, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Whoever does come to Jesus, whoever does believe in him, will not be cast out. Once saved, always saved. Once born again, always born again. Once you've entered the kingdom of God, you can never leave the kingdom of God. This is teaching the perseverance of the saints. The Father's will is to give Jesus some, and those that the Father gives to the Son, he will never lose all who are in Christ will be raised up on the last day. This is another one of those anchor truths. We talked about that last week. Uh, this is another one. This is one of those things we need to continually come back and feed upon. If you have been born again, Jesus will keep you until the end. He will not lose you. And that's our last verse affirms this truth. Verse 40, for this is the will of God, of my, of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up 
on the last day. Everyone who looks upon the Son and believes will be saved and will be saved until the end. This makes complete sense. This is sound biblical doctrine because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all working in concert and complete unity and harmony. There is no possible way that the Son will lose those that the Father has given to him. Let's summarize this this straight talk passage. Jesus came to his disciples at night walking on water, which made them afraid. But as soon as he identified himself, they gladly received him. Once on land, some of the crowd who had been fed miraculously by Jesus the day before were seeking him out again in hopes of being fed physically. Jesus told them not to pursue food that perishes, meaning earthly things, but instead seek after food that endures to eternal life, meaning himself. Jesus declared that he alone is the bread of life, the spiritual food food that endures to life. The people listening were hesitant to believe in Jesus and asked for a sign even though he had just given them one. Jesus told them they did not believe, but that everyone who does believe in him will have eternal life and will not be cast out. This is filled with straight talk. This is is overflowing with straight talk from Jesus to the crowd. But like I said a moment ago, there are two points that really stand out. Number one, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness in Christ. Here's a a summary definition, a short, concise definition of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness wants to be good enough for God without God. Self-righteousness wants to be good enough for God without God. To believe in Jesus is the first work, it's the greatest work, and it's the only work that requires that God requires for salvation. And this is what he's saying in verse 29. They asked him what they needed to do, and Jesus said, nothing. There's nothing you can do. You are to believe in me. And you remember they didn't like that answer. They demanded a sign. Why should we? You tell us what we need to do. You tell us how we can make ourselves good enough for God, and then we'll be on our way. J.C. Ryle uh, said this, quote, Nothing so thoroughly reveals the hearts of men as a summons to believe on Christ. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, you want to know where someone's heart is spiritually? Tell them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Tell them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Die to themselves and follow him. Then you'll find out where they're at. Because you can ask people to do all kinds of good things. You can give them a a moral list of do's and don'ts, and they'll be perfectly fine with that. You you can walk up to somebody and say, don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Do treat others with kindness. Don't be mean to animals. Do donate to worthy causes and and volunteer in the community. You could go on and on like that, and you're going to see lots of head nods and, and people smiling and saying, yeah, yeah. But then you say, I want you to repent of your sin, trust in Jesus Christ, and follow him the rest of your life because he's the only way to salvation. Smiles are gone. Head nods are gone. All of a sudden we see some of these, no. No, go, go back to telling me the, the good things that I need to do to be a good person. That's what I want to be about. 
That's self-righteousness. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He said, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. But the sinful heart clings to self-righteousness like ivy clings to a brick wall. You've got to pull it off. This is by far, by far and away, the number one reason people do not come to Christ. In my experience, this is the number one reason that I see for people not believing in Jesus Christ. It's because they believe they're good enough. I'm okay. I don't need church to be a good person. I am good. I, I'm, not, I'm not like that. I've never murdered anybody. I'm good enough. Do you remember the old school karate movies? And just, just pick one, it doesn't matter. They're all kind of the same. So there, there's this hero of the movie and he's on this character arc where he starts off kind of weak and defeated and unable to, to accomplish his goal. And so he seeks out a teacher, a sensei. And he goes to the sensei and he says, sensei, what shall I do? And the sensei gives him the task and, and he works hard at that and he stumbles around at first, but eventually he masters it. Then he comes back to the sensei and he says, I've mastered this, what do I do next? And the sensei says, now do this. And he goes out and he gives him a task or, or a move to master. And so it goes all the way on up and finally... Uh, the sensei says, one thing you lack. And he sends him out to do this almost impossible task. And he fails multiple attempts. And then finally he does it. And the sensei says, you are ready. And so he sends out and, and he beats up the bad guy or you know, storms the castle or whatever it is. Jesus is not a sensei. We don't come to Jesus and say, what do I do? Well, you need to go out and feed the hungry. Okay, I can, I can work at a soup kitchen. Well, what's next? What do I do now? Okay, now you need to pray. Okay, I, I can pray. I'm, I'm praying. What's next? And so on. We can't work and do good things so that ultimately we achieve the black belt of salvation. Jesus is not a sensei. We don't climb up to heaven through good works. We, we don't make it up to God on our own effort. Nowhere in the entire Bible does it ever teach that we make our way up to God or that we climb up or that we go up to him through our own efforts. In fact, it says the opposite. It says Jesus came down. Look at our own passage, John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven. It's impossible to get to God. It's impossible to reach him through good works. He has to come down to us. We're dead spiritually. We can't even move, let alone climb up to heaven. That's what this passage teaches. It says you can't do it. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. You must come to and believe in Jesus Christ. Whoever, verse 35, whoever comes to me. So the question is, have you come to Jesus? Have you believed in the Son of God? Now this is important and this is time sensitive. We're talking about your salvation, so I'm going to give it to you straight. If you do not repent and believe in Jesus, you will spend an eternity in hell. 
If you repent and believe in Jesus, you will have your sin forgiven. He will immediately accept you into the kingdom and you will be with him forever and he will never lose you. That's the street talk of the gospel. It's all about Christ. We all must look to the Son. Christ alone is perfectly righteous and Christ alone paid for for sin. We need both. We, We have a penalty, a real penalty, from a real holy, wrathful God for our sin that we have committed in this life and for our sinful nature. And that has to be paid. We can either pay for it ourselves through an eternity in hell, or we can have Christ's blood shed on the cross be accepted by God as payment. And we need his righteousness. We don't, we're not perfect. We've, we all have, have unclean hands. We're sinful. We need that perfect righteousness that Christ alone achieved by living the perfect life and fulfilling every single detail of the law. And that also gets applied to us or imputed or credited when we put our faith in him. We can't make ourselves right and Jesus is not a sensei. We must turn to the Son. Number two, perseverance of the saints. Here's another short definition for perseverance of the saints. All those that Jesus saves will be saved. All those that Jesus saves will be saved. Everyone who is regenerate or born again spiritually will never fall away. It's impossible to lose your salvation once you've been truly saved because it's Jesus who's doing the saving. If it were up to us, if we we had to climb the ladder and and, and do all the sensei moves, yeah, I guess we could blow it. I'm, I'm sure we would. But it's not up to us. It's up to Jesus. Jesus is the one who's saving us. So that means it's impossible for us to be lost. Once we are his, we're his forever. Later in John, he says this, John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Once God saves you, you stay saved. Once your sins are forgiven, they stay forgiven. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, they're forgiven always in Christ. Now it's true that we do see some examples of some who seem to be in Christ and who then fall away. But when we see that happening, that means they were never truly in Christ. So let's talk about this for a minute. I think we've all seen examples of that. I I know I've seen several examples of people who talk the talk and who come to church and who say they're believers. They they make a profession of Christ. They're baptized. They come to the table. But in the end, they fall away. They end up not following Christ. They, they end up going their own way. They leave the church. They, they just kind of let that all slide and they return to a life of ongoing unrepentant sin. They, they leave Christ. And so the question might come up, does that mean they lost their salvation? The answer is no. And I want us to see this line here because it's, it's important for believers to see where this line is between believers who sin and, and don't lose their salvation and come back to Christ and those who make a profession but leave and who are never really in Christ. Because if you're a believer and you're 
you're sinning or you're in a season of sin, it's tempting to think that maybe you're not in Christ, and then it's tempting to think you maybe you never were in Christ, and maybe it's tempting to think you're losing your salvation. So, so we need to see where this line is. Let, let's have some straight talk on falling away. When we talk about people who fall away from Christ, it means that we're talking about people who have made a profession of Christ, but then they leave and they never come back. That's the difference. They leave and they stay gone. They never come back to Christ. And that means they were never really in Christ to begin with. We're not talking about someone who's a believer who sins or who sins big. Some, some kind of big, giant, grievous sin. Or a sin, or, or a believer who is currently in a, a season of sin. As tragic as that is, it happens. We're not talking about somebody like that. We're not talking about someone with weak faith. We're not talking about somebody who's a new believer and who, who doesn't really have anything figured out except Jesus is Lord and I need to believe in him to have life. No. We're talking about those who fall away and never come back. Look, look at the example of Peter. He fell away. He denied Jesus three times. When it counted, he, he cursed Jesus. But he came back. Why? Because, because he was better than the rest of uh, the disciples? Or No, because he belonged to Christ. He was regenerate. He was in Christ by faith. And Jesus does not lose those who are his. He came back to the Lord. He was broken over his sin. It says he wept bitterly. He came back. He repented. So the perseverance of the saints teaches that all who are saved will stay saved, even in the face of repeated or particularly grievous sins. But the grace of God should never be presumed upon, and it should never be used as an excuse by believers to remain in and practice ongoing unrepentant sin. So we need to know where that line is, and we need to see um, which line we're on, which side of the line we're on. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's been often said of salvation, if you have it, you will never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it to begin with. That's a really easy way to keep that clear in your head. So the straight talk is this, that the believer in Christ who is walking in ongoing repentance and belief has nothing to fear in this life or in eternity. If you are one of Christ's sheep, then you are one of his forever, and it is impossible for the great shepherd to lose one of his sheep that the Father has given to him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is, is taught in this passage and elsewhere in the Bible. We know that you will never disown us. Father, our sin grieves us. We hate it. We, we don't like it. We don't want to go near it. We want to be free from it. We repent of it. And Father, we, we have to take refuge in the cross. We have to see our sin, bring it to Christ, and believe. 
Father, we thank you that you, you save us and that you, you keep us until the end. We ask that we would go in this confidence, that we would walk in this assurance, and that it would propel us to even further obedience and further zeal for your word and for your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.